Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the AAA edition. It's Friday, January 22nd, and I'm Mariam Ibrahim. I'm a legislature reporter for the Edmonton Journal, and today I'm making the transition from Press Gallery panelist to your new Press Gallery host. But before we begin, we need to thank and acknowledge our colleagues, Brent Whitmire and Ryan Jackson, who were such big parts of this podcast for their leadership. Ryan was our recording engineer and founding producer, and often our videographer. He's the guy who quite literally built our studio, and we thank him for everything he's done to make this podcast so great. And Brent, of course, was my predecessor in the host chair, and now I have very big shoes to fill. Very, very big. Very big. Super big. big. (laughs) Um, He was also a member of our editorial board here at the Journal. Brent, we'd like to say you look fantastic. Um, And we'll miss them both here in the newsroom and uh, on the press gallery. But onward. So, today I'm joined in our newsroom studio by my fellow legislature reporter, Jody Cinema. Good morning. City columnist, Paula Simons. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning. And provincial affairs columnist, Graham Thompson. Hello. Hello. Um, well, let's get right into it. Oil prices continued to fall this week. At one point, they dropped below $27 a barrel for the first time in more than a decade. And that, of course, continues to be bad news for Alberta's economy. Two major bond ratings companies, Moody's and DBRS, issued the report cards for Alberta this week. They both gave Alberta a AAA rating, but they also have negative things to say about our gloomy economic outlook. Graham, tell us, how important are these ratings? Uh, There's two issues on these ratings. One is, on a very practical level, the lower the rating, the more you pay to borrow money a higher interest rate to borrow money. That's not really an issue right now with Alberta because it's still a AAA rating. Um, the government's saying it's not, it won't be spending any more money to, to borrow money, but if these ratings start to drop, it will cost the province money. Um, but on another level, it's a symbolic slap that the province takes. This doesn't look good for the province. you got the opposition saying last year, unless the government changes its fiscal policies, we'll lose our AAA credit rating. Well, we haven't actually lost it. Of course, there was one a few weeks ago that, that did actually drop it to um, with a neg- negative outlook and a double E um, plus right. rating. Right. That was just let me. That was Standard and Poor's. Standard so it was Poor's. from triple A rating to, to du- double, double A, a. Plus. Yes. But the thing is, this does play into the opposition's narrative that things are going badly for the government and they're they're responsible for this. In fact, of course, it's the price of oil dropping all the time. But this does play into a narrative that things are out of control in Alberta, that the opposition is putting forward. You can argue against that. It's still the price of oil. It just doesn't look good for the NDP government. Well, Paula, how surprised should people be that we still have this AAA rating from Moody's and DBRS, but we're we're being told that our outlook is so negative? Well, I was actually a little bit surprised because Standard & Poor's did did drop the rating. I have to say, having watched The Big Short a couple of weeks ago, I'm much more skeptical about how these companies actually <laughs> yes. do their ratings. I hadn't realized quite how craven and political these numbers are because it, there isn't any magic formula that says, you know, ah, what the number should be. And in some ways, as Graham says, when interest rates are as low as they are, I think in practical terms, the n- numbers matter less than, you know, the, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the last time market, you know, the last time oil prices were this low, interest rates were incredibly high. And any change in your credit rating, you know, took, was a really, really big hit to the bottom line. But I think this is more a political thing. I mean, I think the NDP should count themselves quite lucky that they kept those AAA scores. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know what they do 
they cannot control the price of oil, as we keep saying and saying. But, you know, this, I think, does send a message to the Notley government about how much more borrowing capacity they have, and it's not so much. Well, and it definitely sounded like they were going to, they were sending these warning signs, like, if you don't get your act together, we're, we are going to be seeing a downgrade pretty soon. I mean, it, it, should we be looking for something like that to happen, Graham, around budget time? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, as the price of oil keeps dropping and we see the deficit rising, this is going to start Im- impacting the credit rating. I can't see how I, I can't. Reading these reports, you also see that Alberta has a, a lot of tax room to raise taxes. <laughs> so you're thinking, well, gee, they could actually raise taxes and pay down a deficit, but of course, then they have higher taxes. That may be an implication as well, but the reports do point out our tax room to maneuver. Not that the government's going to be raising any more taxes, at least from a news conference yesterday yeah, with Joe Sisi. Like that was going to happen. He was asked, will you, you have a plan on the revenue side to get more money? And he was saying no. So it appears they won't be raising any more taxes, but they're getting hammered both sides right now from the opposition and just the economy and the price of oil. Jody, this week the Wild Rose were calling on the government to, to strike a job summit to talk about the economy, but uh, the NDP aren't biting. What did Economic Development and Trade Minister Darren Billis offer up instead yesterday? He offered up an additional $5 million for a program that gives small and medium-sized businesses money to test products, put them on the market, see if they work, test them in the field. Uh, it's $5 million on top of $4.1 million that they already have in this program. So it's kind of double, he, he was saying, you know, this is double the amount of money that we're giving to small and, and medium businesses and to entrepreneurs to see if they can get products off and commercialize them and make them real. I talked to a couple businesses that are doing really interesting work. One said that for every $15,000 they get in similar grants like this from Alberta or from Canada, they're able to create a permanent job. $15,000 doesn't seem like an awful lot to me. I thought that was pretty interesting. They said permanent job, not just a one-year job. It's going to last into the future. Five million, though, there was an awful lot of people at the press conference. Five million doesn't seem terribly big in the grand scheme of things. Sure, it's doubling up, but uh, there was no estimate of how many jobs this will create. They said there's a lot of spin-off companies, uh, a lot of spin-off jobs, but there's no real hard numbers in, in terms of what this might mean for Alberta. What kind of reaction was that? did that uh, get then from, from opposition and other people? Well, uh, Greg Clark from the Alberta Party phoned me and said, this is, this is chump change. This is hardly anything at all. It's a drop in the bucket. Sure, you know, a little bit of money, that's good news. But, you know, we need something much, much more than this. Graham, is, is a $5 million program enough? <laughs> what do you think? No. Do you agree with Greg Clark? <laughs> yeah, Clark is right. Um, the problem the government has right now is they're losing a lot of money. The price of oil keeps dropping. We keep talking about that. But what did they do? $5 million, of course, is not enough. But how do they get more jobs kick-started? How do they kick-start the economy? They're talking a lot about spending billions of dollars on infrastructure projects. You've got the federal government hoping to fast-track these projects. That's going to help. But the price of oil, you can't counterbalance that with really anything. Even if you were to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, as they will be doing, billions of dollars in infrastructure projects, that is not going to counterbalance this awful weight, this anvil that's dragging the province's economy down. And it's not going to balance all the jobs that have been lost. There have been thousands Thousands of of jobs lost in the oil and gas industry. And $5 million might bring in a few, but not very many more. Right, and not those kinds of jobs that are sort of the well-paying ones that we see up in the patch. Paula, what do you make of the Wild Rose Job Summit proposal? Is this is this posturing? Is this politics? Or is this something that really could create some sort of answers and maybe a way a way forward? Well, it's posturing and it's po- and it's great 
it's great posturing and it's it's it's, it's absolutely sit up straight and, <laughs> and as I'm sitting up straight you probably can't see this on the video but I'm sitting up nice and straight um it's I thought it was PR genius because it it it's a low cost I mean, there, there, you know, there's no, there's no hazard, there's no risk. You have a conference, everybody stands around and looks concerned. You have solidarity. I thought actually it was a pretty clever idea, and it's maybe a clever enough idea that the NDP ought to ought to take it. Um, would it actually make any difference to anything? Well, probably not. Um, but sometimes a PR gesture is a useful thing. I feel like Alison Redford held some of these sort oh, of economic we have summits, had and summits they were really under <laughs> Klein and Redford and Stelmack. And the problem with these summits, A, either they give us nothing, or the experts, when it came to Redford, had a summit in Calgary and Edmonton about what to do regarding finances, and they said, bring in a sales, sales tax. tax. <laughs> <laughs> and the government has to ignore it, this summit. Right. Uh, the thing about the uh, the Wild Rose, and I agree with Paula that it is good PR. It's interesting, though, some of the, the wording of the areas, the four areas they wanted a discussion on was the... Um, the uh, was it radical? Is the word you use? Use a word regarding the um, the NDP's untested policies and policies their impact on, on the government. raising the minimum wage, mm -hmm. um, the taxes. So you could see they were they what what the world was once. It's a room full of angry business people telling the NDP to hammer yeah. at the at the <laughs> yeah. NDP. So it gives them a chance to have a question period when there is no sitting of the legislature in a sense. Oh, and we're going to get to that. <laughs> well, well, let's let's shift gears a little bit. We're still sort of in the economic realm, but uh, this week a group of Mon Metro Montreal mayors held a press conference to express their opposition to the Energy East pipeline, which is really the pipeline that Premier Rachel Notley has been hanging her hat on, is talking a lot about with, with her counterparts uh, across the country. Graham, does it matter? Should it matter what a group of municipal leaders have to say about this uh, infrastructure project? In theory, it shouldn't matter. These things should be done at the federal level, National Energy Board. Um, pipelines, transprovincial pipelines should be done at a federal level. That's what should be happening. But the thing is, in a very practical level, we've seen how local governments, provincial governments, can put up roadblocks to pipelines. Think of the pipelines headed west. When you have the um, the BC government saying it does not want Northern Gateway unless it's four con five conditions met. Even though this is a National Energy Board jurisdiction, federal government jurisdiction, cabinet makes decisions on these, we know on a practical level, and may be unfair to Alberta, and may be in a sense unconstitutional, and against the whole confederation idea, but pr pro provinces and local governments can be very effective at shutting down these pipelines. Well, Brad Wall, who often makes headlines for things that he uh, has to say, critical things he has to say, once again yesterday was quick to criticize those those Metro Montreal mayors. And he asked them on Twitter if they'd like to hand back the equalization <laughs> payments that are uh, funded by oil revenues. This is something that we hear a lot, too, obviously, from the Wild Rose opposition. I think they put out a, a sort of meme like this on Twitter. They're, they're fond of doing that. I think it was, is, uh, was along the same lines, obviously. Um, so... What do you make of, of the response from the Notley gover government to, to these comments from these Montreal mayors? It seemed a little bit tepid to me. Yeah, tepid is a good word for it, Luke. I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, there's an argument to be made that Brad Wall is not helping by by pouring gasoline on the fire. I mean, if the idea is to get a national consensus, I'm not entirely certain that that helps do anything except look like you're being uh, petulant. Uh, because if we want to get the pipeline built, insulting the people through whose 
property we want to run the pipeline may not be the best strategy, no matter how great it makes us feel on the inside. On the other hand, Rachel Notley has said nothing. Um, I mean, she's meeting with Kathleen Wynne today, so maybe she's saying something now while we're recording this, and I will look foolish afterwards. But up until now, she said nothing. And Darren Billis, the uh, uh, economic development minister, said, well, you know, that's not helpful. Uh, it, It was... As Don Braid, our Calgary Herald colleague, remarked in his column, it's, it's the most critical thing an Alberta cabinet minister has said about about these pipeline opponents thus far. But it made it, it made them look like they didn't have a comeback, and just you know, just smiling and asking for social license is not going to be enough. Because and they, you know, when Danico Dare stood up there with those mayors, and he's talking about not just the environmental consequences to the waterways around the island of Montreal, but he's talking about, you know, getting their fair share. And we know what that's code for. Jody, what about you? You were there at that press conference yesterday when, when Darren Billis called this, uh, I think his words were ungenerous and short-sighted. What's at stake here? You were there at that really big climate change announcement last year, you know, and and that was really touted as the thing that was going to win us friends across the country when it came to these kinds of things. You know, what's at stake now for this government? Well, I, at stake is getting our oil to market. Uh, we need to be able to do it. Uh, and I'm wondering if somebody can fill me in. I think there is already a pipeline that goes from Alberta out east, and it's just about changing the direction. Yes, it's a pipeline. It's, it, it ships uh, gas natural gas to Ontario. Right. And, and we have lots of pipelines that go all through the country. But what's at stake here is getting our our product to market. And we need to do that. Uh, there's all this cooperative talk from Rachel. She said, you know, yes, we need the social license to get it to market. We are, you know, instituting a, a carbon tax. We are setting a limit on how many on greenhouse gases. There's going to be a limit that will probably reach by 2030. And they're doing all these positive things to say, hey, Alberta, is in this we're going to reduce our greenhouse gases and even then nobody's really listening and 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 saying what we're doing so being cooperative is not working i don't know if brad wall's position will work either but yeah this is a really good point is that the old way of doing things didn't work to get pipelines built the ndp said we'll do a new way of doing things um We'll stop getting angry at other people, have a reasonable discussion about pipelines. And you're right, the response from other parts of Canada right now is we just don't want the pipelines, period. Another, another argument here that Quebec should be very aware of is the pipeline, uh, sorry, rail versus pipeline debate. Yep. And Quebec knows firsthand what happens when you have a derailment or can have a derailment uh, with pipelines as opposed to being uh, shipped by, by rail. If we have more, and they will, the oil companies will ship them by rail. If they cannot build pipelines and demand for their product, they'll be shipping a lot more by rail. That's a lot more dangerous than pipelines. But going back to what Jody was saying, the NDP government thought we're going to make friends this time, and it seems they're being stymied just like the old way of doing things. See, but the, the, cause the problem is that this has got nothing to do with the environment. I mean, it's not like the people in Montreal stopped using their cars this week. They're bringing in oil from from overseas, I think, you know, from Nigeria in tankers, while they're dumping raw sewage into their own waterways. So to pretend that this is because they're protecting the sanctity of uh, the St. Lawrence River is just ridiculous. This is about money, just as it is with Christy Clark and Trans Mountain. This is about people saying, hey, hey, we're tired of Alberta having all the money and we want some of the money. And you know what? Maybe that's not an unreasonable public policy position. But, you know, there is 
a cutting off your nose to spite your face argument here. If our oil can't get to Tidewater, then nobody gets any money. So at, at a certain point, you know, I mean, when I looked at Coder and his coterie, I'm thinking like, like, like what? Are you asking for kickbacks? Because that's what it looks like, I'm sorry to say. Um, and that's why, I mean, I, I think the whole social license greenhouse gas argument is really important for Canada's and Alberta's international reputation and maybe for, for a Keystone-like project. But these uh, projects that going to BC and to the Maritimes, this is about this is about the age-old confederation argument of, you know, the, the people people fighting for, you know, what they deem to be their fair share, um, which to other provinces looks like the unfair share. This mm. is also going to, of course, fuel the opposition. They're going to say, Rachel Lotley is raising your carbon taxes. There's all sorts of, you're going to be paying way more money here, and yet still there's no pipeline. So it, it's going to drive down uh, pop her popularity here in Alberta too, of course. Yeah, I do not envy their position right now at all. Uh, they're, you know, they're dealing with criticism from these credit lending agencies and from the Montreal mayors and here at home, a lot of pushback from the Catholic Church. Also, Jody, which you've been covering for us very well, <laughs> This week at issue, of course, we're talking about the province's suggested guidelines for the treatment of gay, lesbian, trans, queer, questioning students and staff at uh, schools across the province. This has been something that's been in the news a lot over the past year or so and has really reached a fever pitch this week. Jody, last week, uh, Calgary's very fiery bishop, one who we hear uh, a lot from um, recently, Fred Henry, condemned these guidelines as anti-Catholic quote, totalitarianism. Um, but Edmonton's Archbishop Richard Smith had been very quiet until Thursday when he finally issued a statement from India. Jody, what made Smith's letter so important in this debate? For one, he's the he's an archbishop, so he's, I think, a little bit above the two bishops that have released very fiery letters uh, saying we should reject these guidelines. Uh, also, he's, and he's based in Edmonton. He's traveling right now, hasn't had a chance to respond. Uh, he did respond from India via another letter. His letter was much more uh, level-headed, I would say. He didn't use those really strong totalitarian kind of words. Uh, and he did have some criticism of those guidelines. But what made this so important is that he specifically addressed the Edmonton Catholic School Board and the the clear problems uh, that they are having. He didn't name any school board trustees, but he said they have lost the trust of the people that they have elected because of all the infighting and the lack of unified voice that they have brought forward. The interesting thing is, as I said, he has not named which trustees he's really calling out. And people are saying that he's calling out the chairperson who is not in she was not at the school district building when some trustees decided to send out Calgary's bishop's letter, Fred Henry, right. to our Edmonton school parents. Um, so there's obviously stuff going on there that we do not know. Um, well, if people remember those couple of meetings that happened uh, <laughs> uh, months back, they were they were quite something. I think they were being live tweeted and live streamed, and, and people were crying. There were uh, people oh, shouting. And of course, so many people those crying. were very public meetings. Yeah. Obviously, there are other meetings happening behind closed doors now that we don't know what's happening. Right. And he's saying, look, we got to figure this out. Something has to happen with this Catholic school board. He basically said, look in the mirror, make sure you're looking at your code of conduct and make sure that you're doing this job for the right reasons or, you know, potentially not step down. But he said, really think about what, why you're a school trustee. So wow. I think it opens the door to the education minister to consider dissolving the school board.
Paula, did you read between the lines there in that letter? Were there any messages uh, Smith had for uh, Education Minister David Egan? Yeah, I think Jody's absolutely right. I mean, David Egan is very awkwardly situated. He has the power to dissolve a dysfunctional school board. But if he dissolves the Catholic school board in Edmonton now, it makes it look like he's beating up on Catholics. Mm -hmm. Um, But the board is dysfunctional in all kinds of ways, and it's not just about this trans and, and gay issue. I mean, they can't have a discussion about anything without it devolving into name-calling and tears and threats of legal action. It's just a broken board at this point. They couldn't organize a church picnic. You know, they, could, they couldn't rent a school bus. So I think that the board at this point does need to be dissolved, and I think that what Smith's letter does is give David Egan the political cover to do that. Uh, you know, I'm guessing that although the board sent out Fred Henry's letter, they're not going to be sending out the letter that, you know, says that they've betrayed their electors, which is betrayed. That's actually the word yeah. that uh, that Smith used. But, but I think there's another message for Egan there, too. I think that although Smith makes it very clear that church doctrine cannot conform with exactly what Alberta Education is asking of the boards. I thought there was some very interesting language of diplomacy in his letters, suggesting, I think, grounds for a possible compromise. Yes, there was much more flexible kind of language. He was open. He thought there were some really good ideas in those guidelines. So, you know, it's the first sign I've seen that there might be a way that we can get around this issue of how you have a publicly funded Catholic school board that is true to its faith and also respects the rights and the dignity of gay and trans kids. So go Richard Smith. Um, but uh, the Catholic school board I, in Edmonton, I think uh, he may have signed their death warrant. Um, let's move ahead a little bit to the legislature sitting. Um, we've been hearing a lot of, of complaints from the opposition in recent um, months. Well, I mean, we've been hearing it for months now about the NDP delaying lots of different things. The royalty review, the previous 2015 budget. And now we're hearing it again about the spring budget and the spring sitting of the legislature, which has been set for March 8th. That's when we are going to be coming back to the legislature and debating legislation. Jody, what kind of explanation has the government given so far for starting the session so so late this year? I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there has been a real explanation. <laughs> they just kind of handed us the notes and said, these are the dates. There was a follow-up email saying, look, there's been lots of other legislature sittings, spring legislature sittings that have have started this late as well. And in terms of how many days they're sitting, they did a comparison and say, hey, we're about the same as the previous Tory government. Uh, you know, we have the, uh, 38 days in the spring session and 16 in the fall session. And they said that, you know what, that's not bad. The issue is, okay, it might not be bad, but why not make it a bit better? And why not start? Graham explained to me that in previous legislature sittings, they typically start, or the common idea is you start on the second Tuesday in February, yeah. which I can't remember which date it was, but it's... The, the 10th of February this year. Yes. So we're, we're about a month late then. We're one month late. month late. And the government is right. Um, sometimes we actually do start late, but we start late for a reason, an election, a leadership race in the Tories that, that <laughs> meant that the uh, the new leader was getting his feet on the ground or her feet on the ground. That party's politics used to really drive so much in this province. Yeah. And, yeah, but and, those, and aren't, those aren't actually good reasons. No, <laughs> but, but they are. The reasons. The reasons. So in other words, when they were late, it was because they had an election in February. Um, but 
they start when they start late they're starting late normally because they're in trouble of some kind and this time around it's a budget they don't know how to answer so many questions on the economy how do we get jobs um, how do we kickstart the economy what's the size of the deficit they're still working out that budget and they are not ready uh, you mentioned the um, royalty rate review panel report mm-hmm. still waiting for that it was to be December then January is it going to happen this month? We'll wait and see. When I talked to CeCe twice now in the last two weeks, I've said to him, can you even guarantee we'll see the budget in March? He wouldn't guarantee that. He wouldn't that. do Yeah, that's right. I was in that press conference yesterday, too, and he wouldn't do that. And you know, Jody, it was interesting when you were talking about the fact that they, you know, they're, they're saying, well, look, sometimes you start late, and this is how many days we're, we've sat... I think I've said this on this podcast before. It gets a little bit tiring to hear that sort of thing because it's like, do better, you know? Like, you were elected for change. Do better. Put yourself out there more. Don't just do the bare minimum. But uh, and, and I say this as somebody who's done some data projects looking at the number of days that Alberta's legislature actually sits, and it is among the fewest sitting days of any legislature in the country. I think we're right up there with, like, Nova Scotia, uh, and I think arguably um, um, we should be uh, seeing our MLAs in the legislature I think a, a little bit more. One thing to sort of balance that off, just remember that last session, they started doing morning sittings. Mm-hmm. So there are, I guess, a few more hours in days where they are working. So they're they're there the entire day and in the last session, of course, all throughout the evenings. So in terms of how many hours they're in the legislature might be slightly different with those morning sessions, yeah. but still there's not very many days. And, you know, the thing is, it's not just about the work that they're getting done. It's about being publicly accountable. And when they're in question period, when they're in session, they can be held accountable in a way that they can't when they're just, I mean, it's not that they're not working now. It's not mm-hmm. like they're all off, you know, skiing and, and tanning themselves on the beaches in Mexico. I mean, everybody's working, but they're not working where we can see them, where we can watch them, where the public can watch them and where the opposition can watch them. Right. And that's really problematic because you're right, Miriam, to say, well, we're not any, you know, we're not any worse than the Tories is not really why they were elected. Yeah, and and, and certainly you're right, right? Question period is the, the vehicle that the opposition uses to hold the government to account in, in the public's view. And so uh, I think uh, a lot of people, and hey, some of us really just like when session's in and, and well, watching is, you know, every day. <laughs> we're facing so many different major issues right now. We want to see how the government's handling it in a very public way, but that's the very reason they're not going back early is because they don't know how to handle they don't have any answers how do you possibly keep the deficit to 6.1 this year and bring it down to 5.4 the next it's not going to happen well and you know but the problem is the longer she stays out the weaker she looks i mean she can't afford to look like she's hiding at a certain point she rachel notley has to come out and say this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it uh well we don't want to be late so let's uh (laughs) Let's shift gears here and move over to good stuff from the gallery. The moment when we recommend something good to read or watch or listen to, usually but not always, of a political nature. Jody, what do you have for us this week? Well, we were talking about the delay of the royalty review. There's a possibility that it could be released this coming week. That could change. But I would suggest for people, it's a really uh, complicated topic. Uh, the Alberta government and... Uh, Dave Mowat, the fellow who is leading that royalty review, set up a website. It's called letstalkroyalties.ca. It's got a lot of background information, really basic information about what royalties are, how they're set up, how oil and natural gas comes out of the ground and that kind of thing. You can go there. You can't of course, offer your opinions on anything anymore, <laughs> but it's a really good background read. Maybe uh, take a look at it and see see how things work in the province and you can do jump, jump 
to other news stories to get more background, but it's it's a good starting point. So Jody just gave everybody homework. Um, <laughs> Paula, what do you have? I have something much more fun. I'm going to suggest that uh, that people read uh, Fifteen Dogs by Andrea Alexis. This is the novel that won the Giller Prize. And why am I uh, recommending it in a press gallery political podcast? Uh, in in the premise of the book is that fifteen dogs are given the intellect of human beings. It's part of a bet between the god Hermes and the god Apollo. That's just and, like my dog. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the thing that's fascinating, they, they, so the dogs get a human intelligence, but they keep their dog nature. And what we learn about is the politics of the dog pack, where everything is about dominance and submission and who is in positions of power. And seeing the world of of sort of political relations from the point of view of dogs. Now, when I look around the world, I can't see any political issue without thinking about it in issues of dominance. How would how would the dogs <laughs> handle handle this power struggle? How would the dogs, I mean, really everything is about where you pee in the park. Um, and so it's a great book. It's a great read, but it's also, you know, it, it, it's making me reconsider the power relationships in all human dynamics. And so, yes, after you read the very important royalty review backgrounder. <laughs> do your homework first. And then you can have dessert. There you go. Graham, what do you have for us? Um, yes. Uh, it's a hard act to follow. Um, it's an article on Salon.com. Um, it's the title is it's a bad title, but it's Donald Trump talks at a fourth grade level. <laughs> Maybe that's why the Fox News audience loves him. <laughs> now the thing is, now to be <laughs> fair, that, that, is that a bad title? <laughs> I, I mean, in a sense, because politicians often speak at a fourth grade level on purpose, and they're not idiots. It's just, they're trying to get to a, a wider audience, much like There's journalism. An exception to the rule. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, should be talking to a wide audience. But it's an interesting uh, article. And it's going to make progressives feel really smug and con conservatives feel really, really angry. Because it's saying basically um, the U.S. has fostered a culture of anti-intellectualism more than most other Western countries. And it's talking about how people listen to, to Trump who like him are not using critical faculties. They're not actually using critical thought. So they're saying that people actually use more critical thought on issues like climate change. And they've done studies on this. Um, people are asked to, to think clearly about certain issues. They become more liberal. They become more progressive. They actually say climate change is real, whereas conservatives get very knee-jerk reactions and say it's all a hoax. It's a, it's a ploy by the liberals. So it's an article basically praising progressivism and um, slamming conservatives, but in a very clever way, using actual um, not just anecdotal but actually um, stats and surveys to show this is actually a real problem in the U.S., and that's why Trump is actually doing so well. That actually brought to mind an um, essay I read. I, there's a book I have about The Simpsons, and it's Philosophy and The Simpsons, and sort of talks about philosophical ideas that come up in uh, episodes of The Simpsons, and one of them is about, Amer it's Lisa. Uh, it sort of centers on Lisa and how she's used as like the intellectualism of America, and everyone sort of gangs up on Lisa, and, it's, and it just sort of goes in that same vein of that anti-intellectualism. Maybe I'll put that up as a bonus good read. Um, <laughs> so here's what I'm recommending. It's I feel like I'm always recommending something from McLean's, but once again, it's from McLean's. It's The Angry Radical Right by uh, Martin Patrick Quinn. Sorry, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Martin. A very distressing and chilling piece on um, these uh, very angry sort of right-wing um, uh, um, extremist type folks who are on Facebook groups and, and online forums 
writing these really horrendous things that we've talked about, obviously, on this podcast before, you know, violent rhetoric and that sort of thing. And 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 actually interviews one of these people who is on Facebook and writing these really horrendous things about shooting politicians and that kind of thing. Uh, and 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 is is just really chilling at the sort of the um, the matter of factness, this person, the way this person talks about it and the fact that he says that he doesn't really mean it and sort of what those implications are. So um, a very chilling read, but I think one that we should all uh, get our eyeballs on because it's uh, uh, was really sort of frightening to see that that is existing all around us, um, just outside the the political discourse sphere. Well, that's it for this triple A edition of the Press Gallery. Um, once again, before we end, I'd like to thank our colleagues Brent Whitmire and Ryan Jackson, who were such big parts of this podcast, for all of their help. You can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and via TuneIn Radio. Subscribe and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you just as soon as we have it ready. Thank you to Greg Southam, who is our videographer this week, and thank you all for listening. I'm Miriam Ibrahim, and we'll be back next week in the Press Gallery. <laughs>